The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We are looking at the topic of the doctrine of the Word of God, and this was in last week's handout, but there are basically four characteristics that Wayne Grudem is recommending. And, and by the way, the material, the outline, the general structure that I'm following is that of Wayne Grudem in a systematic theology. I'm adding some of my own things, and you'll be able to see what they are. Um, some of them are a little eccentric, but I mean, you'll be able to, to tell. But he's, uh, he's basically laid out a highway, I think, that's good to travel, and I'm, I'm following that outline. So the... Uh, Bibliographic credit goes to him for that. But we've looked at the different forms of the Word of God. We talked about that last time, that God speaks in different ways. He communicates in different ways. Uh, but we are primarily working with the written Word of God. Now, we're going to start tonight by looking at the idea of the canon of Scripture, namely what belongs in the Bible and what does not. And then he gave us four characteristics of Scripture, namely authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Authority we're going to talk about tonight and we're going to talk God willing also about inerrancy tonight so those are two topics we're going to cover tonight uh, authority of scripture and inerrancy which is very strongly connected to authority that'll leave us three characteristics that God willing I, I'll try to cover next time namely clarity uh, necessity and sufficiency first of all clarity uh, is the Bible clear can you understand it or do you need a PhD or a special degree in order to read or understand the Bible and if we answer no, you don't, which is the right answer for the most part, we should realize that there's still a role for scholarship and we still are learning things from people that do spend their whole lives uh, working on Scripture. But the essential clarity of Scripture is taught in the Bible. We're going to talk about that. Uh, the, the third characteristic is necessity. Do we need the Bible? Is it indispensable? And the answer is yes. We must have the Bible. We didn't have to have it in an absolute sense. God could have chosen to do something a different way. But the way he has chosen to work, we must have the scriptures. Uh, it's it's uh, necessary. We're going to find out about what the Bible is necessary for and also somewhat about how much people can know about God without the Bible. But there's a limitation to that. And then fourthly, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of scripture. One of the, one of the big topics these days, uh, the sufficiency of scripture. Is the scripture enough? Or do we need the Scripture plus other things? Is the Scripture enough for um, uh, the running of a local church? Is the Scripture enough for a growing ministry? Or do we have to add things? Is the Scripture enough to reach postmodern people? Is the Scripture enough? Or, or have we moved beyond the Scripture? Now we need the Scripture plus something else in order to reach this generation. Well, you know what I think about that. Of course the Scripture is sufficient. But we're going to talk about that. So those are the very uh, the characteristics of Scripture that Grudem gives us. Authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. But before we even get to that, we have to understand what the Scripture is. What are we talking about? And that brings us to the topic of the canon of Scripture. How do we know what the Bible is? The answer is you go to Lifeway or any Christian bookstore and they'll sell you a Bible. And that's how you know. You open the, up and there's the table of contents. And those is that how it is? Well, you have to know that there's some history that goes behind the identification of the 66 books that we call Scripture. You should also know that the Roman Catholic Church, at least, disagrees with us on the extent of the canon in that they add some additional books that we don't have. 
in our scripture. They call, they're called the Apocrypha. They add those additional books. Now, why do they do that? And what do we think about that? And, and what's the difference between Protestants and Catholics on that issue? So we're going to the doctrine of the canon of scripture. What belongs in the Bible and what does not? Now, first, when you get to the idea of a canon, what you're talking about, the word canon literally means ruler. It's like a yardstick. It's a rule. All right, you know the National Bureau of Standards and Measurements in Washington and all that. You go and you can find, you know, a, a meter, for example, a perfect meter, and they keep it at a certain temperature and pressure, and it's more accurate than anything you could ever measure. I mean, it is the perfect meter. It is the standard meter, or the standard gram is there, or some other standards and uh, measurements, and and so there they are. And from that, everything else measures up against it. So that if you have a meter stick uh, and you bring it there and, and yours is out of whack, I mean, yours is, if, if there's a discrepancy, let's put it that way, a difference between yours and the standard, then who's wrong? Well, by definition, you're wrong because they're identifying this as the standard. And so this is a meter. And so that's what the canon is. It's basically, that is the yardstick of truth. And so we're going to find out what the what the canon is. Now, the canon is, very simply, the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. Let's speak just straight out, you know, not using advanced theological terms. It's just a list of books that are included in the Bible. Now, is there such a list? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 32.47, uh, Moses said to the people before they entered the Promised Land, he's speaking of the words of the law. He said, these words, they are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So in other words, it's not an idle matter, these words I'm speaking to you. They are incredibly important and vital that you study the, the words of Scripture. It's vital that you understand these things. Well, if that's true, don't you think it's vital to know what words they are? Isn't it vital to know which are God's words and which are not God's words? Even more when it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, do not add to what I command to you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands the Lord your God of the Lord your God that I gave you. So the Bible is not something we can add to and it's not something we can take away from. Do not add to it and do not take away from it. We do not have the right to add to Scripture, do we? We don't have the right to take away from Scripture. But God has the right to add to Scripture, doesn't he? How do we know that? Well, at the time that Deuteronomy was written, how many books of the Bible were there? Five. First five books, what we call the books of Moses. Has he added since then to Scripture? Oh, he's added quite a bit, hasn't he? And he has the right to do that. He has the right to add to Scripture. But we do not have the right to add to Scripture. Furthermore, we believe that God has finished Scripture, that he hasn't added anything since the book of Revelation was written. And if you take your Bibles and look at the end of the Revelation... is not on your sheet, but it's a spontaneous moving of the Holy Spirit, I think, in me, that we should look at the end of the book of Revelation. And we should look and see what it says there. By the way, the tables of, table of weights and measures is not canonical, okay? The maps are not canonical. They're in all your Bibles, but... Uh, that's not canon. That's not in the Scripture. But before the tables of, table of weights and measures, you're going to get this statement. In Revelation chapter 22, uh, verse 18, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, 
God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Well, that immediately applies to what? As you read that, what is, he, what is that talking about? The book of Revelation itself. But yet it's significant, I think, that this exact same warning was given back in Deuteronomy at the beginning of the Revelation. Now, the book of Genesis was first, we believe. Uh, probably Exodus came first in the Ten Commandments, but in terms of the writing, the five, we take them together. So the, the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the beginning of God's writing to the world. And in that, in Deuteronomy 4.2, he says, don't add, don't take away. Book of Revelation, clearly the final book. Uh, it's uh, historically, uh, tradition has it, the latest book in the in the New Testament. Um, it deals with the end of the world more clearly than any other book, uh, and so in a way, it's kind of the Omega book, isn't it? If the, the books of Moses were the Alpha books, that's the closing book, and so we get the same warning: don't add, don't take away. And so, to some degree, that really kind of sums up and completes the canon. We are not allowed to add to the canon. We're not allowed to take away from it. What would? Why is that important? The idea of not adding and not taking away. Why does that matter? Okay, Book of Mormon. They accept the Bible as we have it, but they add to it, don't they? What do they add to the Book of, I mean, to the Bible? The Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Covenants and Acts and Covenants or whatever. They've got a number of other books. Well, what effect does that have on their reading of Scripture? Say again. They don't. They don't. They'll take those new books as really almost the, their canon and if there's ever a discrepancy between scripture and their books they will go with their own with with the book of mormon and the other books all right so that becomes their authority those that that new revelation it has a tremendous diluting effect what was the problem with the roman catholics adding the uh the apocrypha well there's doctrines and different things in the apocrypha that you're not going to find anywhere else in the bible like praying praying for the dead for example um, and that ends up being a significant part of Catholic theology. Masses for the dead, prayers for the dead. This is a big issue. And, uh, but they're not found. You're not going to find that teaching anywhere else in the 66 books of the Bible. It's only found in a couple of the apocryphal books. So it ends up having a great impact. We're not to add, we're not to take away. Now, the Old Testament canon is made up of how many books? 39 books of the Old Testament. It began with the Ten Commandments placed in the Ark of the Covenant. They added to it Moses' writings laid alongside the Ark of the Covenant. In Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26, the writing is there. Basically, uh, Moses said, here's a copy of my words of the laws that God gave me. More than the Ten Commandments were in there, of course. The instructions about the building of the tabernacle and all those other things. And they were laid alongside the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments from God, but laid alongside were the writings of Moses. And so you have a growing canon. You see that. It starts with the Ten Commandments, and then it grows to the writings of Moses. Okay. Then they added Joshua's words. You look at Joshua 24, 26. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. So now here's Deuteronomy 4, 2, which says, Do not add to these words and here's Joshua adding why is Joshua not in violation of the command of Deuteronomy 4.2 by adding because God told him to do it so it was not Joshua who did it it very much is without getting into a difficult ethical issue the difference between 
between murder and killing. When God tells Joshua to go in and wipe out all of these Canaanites, right? Is that murder? Is he breaking the Ten Commandments? No, because God told him to do it. But the Ten Commandment really is, you shall not take it upon yourself, independent of God, to end a human life. That's not your place. But God clearly, frequently commands his godly people to kill this wicked king or to do, you know, it's just part of the, part of the uh, scripture. And so Joshua clearly was commanded to go in and, for example, in Jericho, wipe out every man, woman, and child. It's all going to be destroyed. And you know that that's in the scripture. I'm not saying anything new. But what I'm saying is when God says to do it, you do it. And he commanded Joshua to write down these words and lay it alongside. And so that's why we have a record of the death of, of Moses. Uh, we assume that the closing chapter of the book of Deuteronomy was clearly not written by Moses. He was up in heaven at that point. But Joshua probably finished up that account and then wrote the book of Joshua as well about the conquest of the promised land. Well, after that, we have other things added. For example, Samuel's words and histories. First Samuel 10.25, Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship and he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So now Samuel's writings are added, his histories. First and second Samuel, and we're not quite sure how far it goes. Second Samuel probably would not be included because he died, but there's the idea of, of, of a growing canon. So uh, the history books uh, added. Later, other historians and prophets added their writings as well. First Chronicles 29, 29, it says, as for the events of King David's reign, from the beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer. So basically, Samuel started the history writing, Nathan picked it up, and then this guy Gad as well. So there's a number of authors of scripture, these histories, Kings and Chronicles, First uh, Samuel, uh, Kings, Chronicles, these were added. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8, God spoke to Isaiah and said, Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for days to come it may be an everlasting witness. And so God told Isaiah, write down your vision now, write it down on a scroll. And so we have the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah, the same thing. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. And so he told him to write. Now, interestingly, I don't believe it was Jeremiah that did the writing, but rather his secretary, Baruch. And this is an important topic. Uh, a lot of times the authors of scripture actually dictated their writings to a secretary who would write them down. For example, you know who really wrote the book of uh, Romans? It wasn't Paul. It was a uh, amanuensis, a secretary. And you look in, Revel in Romans 16 and he'll tell you his name. And uh, I think it's probably because Paul's eyesight was so bad that he really couldn't write toward the end of his ministry and the end of his life. At one point in Galatians, he says, see what large letters I use to write my name. You know, I'm writing to you. So he said, I'm grabbing the pen and I'm writing to you. But uh, the secretaries wrote in the name of the apostles or in the name of the prophet. Well, that's why in uh, Jeremiah 45, Baruch is so upset because the king had burned the scroll and it wasn't on the hard drive. All right. So, I mean, when that thing got burned, it was over. He had to do it again. And God said, go take another scroll and write on the same words you wrote the first time. And Baruch said, oh, you've added groaning to my groanings and all this. He's very upset because he did all this work and now he's got to do it again. But God commanded that it be done. So you see a growing Old Testament canon. Little by little, these books are being added. Okay? The collection of writings grew until the end of the writing time, around the year 436 B.C. with Malachi. We believe that that was the last um, uh, writing uh, that we have in the Old, Old Testament. Now, what about the Apocrypha? First of all, what are the Apocrypha? Well, they're Jewish writings from Malachi to the New Testament era. Okay? They're additional Jewish writings. The list uh, of Roman Catholic accepted Apocrypha, 1st and 2nd Esdras, 
Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, also called Sirach, Baruch with the letter of Jeremiah. Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary. I just told you a second ago. Song of the Three Young Men. That's the Jewish um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their song while being burned. Uh, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, and then First and Second Maccabees. Um, and these have a, a varied um, uh, interest and a varied level of, of significance. First and Second Maccabees, for example. Uh, gives us a great deal of information uh, that really shows us how accurate the prophecies of Daniel were. Uh, Daniel speaks very clearly in Daniel 11 about uh, about warfare in Israel in between the Testament times. And the best history you're going to get of that is in First and Second Maccabees. But it's not Scripture. Now, how do we know it's not Scripture? Well, number one, the Jews didn't think it was Scripture. They excluded these books. They rejected them. In uh, Romans, why is that significant? Well, understand the Jews were given a special job to do by God. They were called out for a special purpose. And in Romans 3, 1 and 2, Paul talks about that. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? He says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, what is Paul referring to there? Scripture was entrusted to the Jews and to no one else. Nobody else got books. It wasn't like, well, from the Orient, uh, from China, we get these five books, and from Africa, we get these. God could have done it that way. He chose not to. He chose to give all of his old covenant revelation to one people, the Jews. And they were stewards of it. They were entrusted with it, it says. And so that's actually, in Paul's mind, the highest blessing they got. They got the Scripture, and they were entrusted with it. They rejected the apocryphal books. They did not consider them scripture. Now, Jerome added them in 404 AD in his Latin Vulgate, and that was a big step. I think as a result of Jerome adding these books in his Latin translation of the Bible, and then it went west to Rome and all that, and the Roman Catholic Church picked up and accepted them as scripture. But the Jews never did. Uh, truly, they really are not scripture at all. There are many errors, many false doctrines within them, like prayer for the dead. Christ and the apostles never quoted them. The early church fathers never quoted them and the Jews rejected them. Yes? I thought John specified that they were not Christian. No, he didn't. Actually, I think he was leaning the other way. But uh, Augustine actually quoted from them and used them. So he contributed. He's partly guilty here as well. I mean, Augustine was a towering figure, but he was not inerrant. Um, and so he, you know, he identified those and, and they soon were part of the Roman Catholic canon. All right, now, that's the Old Testament canon. Now we have the New Testament canon. What are these? Well, these are the 27 books that we identify as the New Testament from Matthew to the book of Revelation. First of all, we have an indication uh, that the New Testament canon would exist in Christ's own teachings, don't we? Jesus said it would. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." Well, Jesus is referring to these words of mine. Do you notice that? 
And basically the difference between the fate of the houses is what? What's the difference? Putting what into practice? His words. So basically, and we know that this is a metaphor for a person, isn't it? I mean, it's not. we're not talking about architecture here. We're talking about people, okay? Every man, every person who hears these words and does such and such is like a house, you see. So the house is not the issue. It's the people that are the issue. What he's saying, therefore, is that people hear his words. Now, what are the words? What's he referring to? Well, immediately in Matthew 7, you have to look back to Matthew 6 and 5 and think it is, you assume that it refers to the Sermon on the Mount because that's the close of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Ma- Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes up to this warning of the houses that, that fall or the house that survives. So everyone who hears the Sermon on the Mount and acts this way or acts that way, th- their destiny will be one or the other, either destruction or life. I think that's what we're getting out of it. But you have to go deeper. Only a handful of people, you know, in terms of overall world history, actually literally heard Jesus preach. I think we have to assume that hearing these words of mine was going to extend to us as well, that we would hear the words of Christ, that we would put them into practice or that we would neglect them. Well, we can go even stronger than that. Jesus said in Matthew 24:35, quite directly, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, plural, will never pass away. Now, I've always thought it was significant that he said my words and not simply my word. When you say my word, there's a sense of kind of my creative power or my communication or something. You know, uh, you have to, uh, you know, he, he's a man of his word, that kind of thing. It's a way of communicating. Um, Jesus didn't say that. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my nouns, my verbs, my adjectives, my syntax, it's still going to be around when the world ends. Well, doesn't that imply that it's going to get written down somewhere? Doesn't it imply that there's going to be a written record, especially given the fact that they already had a literary history? They already had the 39 books. And so Jesus was going to have his words written the way Moses' words were written as well. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then he says, as I mentioned before, in the uh, story about the woman who anointed his feet and everyone was so upset about it, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now you'd say told does not imply writing, but I think it really does. I don't know how the gospel is going to be preached and surely I am with you to the end of the age, he says, without it getting written down. Is it just going to be passed down from generation to generation verbally? Well, the Jews didn't do that in the Old Covenant, did they? They wrote it down. And so therefore, the the story of the woman and her anointing is going to make it into somebody's gospel. Well, it made it into Matthew's gospel. All right, so Christ's words are going to be written for future generations. Paul's writings also were elevated to the level of Scripture. I don't want to say elevated. They came in that way. Um, But they were identified and recognized. Paul saw it himself. In 1 Corinthians 14.37, as he's dealing with the issue of, um, I think, their uh, prophecy, um, and as prophets speak out, he's giving instructions. Very controversial passage. It has to do also with the whole gender and authority issue. In 1 Corinthians 11, you've got the head coverings. 1 Corinthians 14 is where he makes the statement, women should be silent in the churches. You have to interpret that because in 1 Corinthians 11, women are permitted to pray and to prophesy in church, but just under, under authority. Um, but after all of that controversial teaching that nobody, you know, people would struggle with all, he says this, 1 Corinthians 14:37. if anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Well, what is he claiming there? What is he saying? 
My words are equal in authority to that of Jesus Christ. Would Jesus have said so? Yes, he, he did. He said it straight out. I'll show you later. We'll get to it later in your handout. But he said, if anyone believes my teaching, they'll believe yours also. If anyone does not believe my words, they're not going to believe yours either. He draws a direct connection between the apostles' words and his own. All right? And furthermore, Jesus didn't write a thing, did he? I guess he scribbled in the sand with the woman that was caught in adultery. That's the only writing we have from Jesus. All the writing was going to be done by other people. And so if their written words were not equal in authority to Jesus', then we're, we're in a big problem because we don't have any record of Jesus' words except that somebody else wrote them down. Okay, uh, but even more than that, we get Second Peter three fifteen and 16. Peter, writing, uh, speaks about the end of the world. And then he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you. By the way, that phrase, our Lord's patience means salvation, that's just a, a very important topic, okay? The end of the world is the end, folks. And nobody gets saved after that, right? So aren't you glad, personally, that he waited and didn't bring the end in the year 820 or the year 1463 or the year 1525 or whatever year you were born minus one, all right? Or the year you were saved minus one, really. Um, his patience has meant at least your salvation, right? And as he continues to wait, it means salvation for other people. Day after day, people being brought to faith in Christ. So his patience means salvation. Isn't that wonderful? It's a great teaching. But anyway, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them, in them of these matters. Now stop right there. He writes in all his letters the same way. What does that tell you about Peter? There's something very interesting going on here. Peter has a collection of Paul's letters, doesn't he? He's read them, all of them. We don't know every single solitary letter, but he is enough to say he writes the same way in all his letters. So he's, got, he's collecting Paul's letters. He thinks of them as noteworthy. All right? He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Uh, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Isn't that encouraging? Here's Peter, one of the apostles. Actually, I'm going to argue in Matthew 10, the first of the apostles, because it says protos in Matthew 10. He's the first of the apostles, and he can't understand some of the things that Paul writes. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Parenthetically, Peter's letters contain some things that are hard to understand too. So we can't sling that around too much, like the descent to the dead and all that kind of thing. And I mean, there's some hard, hard teachings in Peter. But at any rate, end of parentheses, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now, here's the key phrase. As they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. What is Peter saying about Paul's letters? They're scripture. He's saying that they're scripture. This is a very vital text to show that there was a New Testament canon in view even while it was being written. Do you see that? So Paul's letters were going to be scripture. Now, turn the page. My seminary professor, Roger Nicole, begins to ask questions about the canon. And many of you perhaps have had questions about the canon. If you start to study church history... And you start to realize some of the, I hate to say it this way, but smoke-filled rooms that these ecumenical councils were. And, you know, they'd vote on, on this book and they'd vote on that one and one of them would make it by the skin of its teeth and the other one, you know. And it's like, whoa, that's kind of iffy, you know. Why was this book included and that one not? And you start to study these things and you start to say, you know, maybe, you know, the, we, we just accepted a tradition and things got kind of encrusted in tradition, but, you know, it wasn't that way from the beginning. 
and it and actually can can um, it can have the same effect on you. At least it could it did on me when you begin to think about it uh, of learning that there are such things as manuscripts in the New Testament. What are manuscripts? Well, I don't know if you know this, but we don't have anything that Peter and Paul actually wrote. All we have are copies. We'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, it's like, oh my goodness, they're manuscripts. That means we don't really have the Bible. And so you begin to get insecure and say, you know, are the ecumenical councils, those ugly battles and squabbles and the 55 to 45% votes, is that enough to be sure that these are the 27 books of the New Testament? Have you ever had those questions? Have you ever wondered about that? Maybe you have. I don't know. Maybe you, did, you walked in the door thinking, I thought this came down from God and I, I didn't know there was a smoke-filled room. Boy, you're, you're bothering me. Well, I don't... Yeah, <laughs> King James Bible didn't come. So Roger is asking, Roger Nicole is asking, why did God not provide for us a Bible with an inspired table of contents? Right? Why didn't it come down that way so that we would not remain in a quandary as to the precise scope of Scripture? That is a good question. Okay? Yeah, real quick. Yeah. Well, they agreed on a lot. Obviously, they agreed that there was one God creator of heaven and earth. I mean, there's a lot of stuff they agreed, but they had some problems. Yeah, and I think that, that we're actually heading toward the answer to the question. They, they, there, was, there was really no debate about the, the Old Testament canon, the 39 books. Okay, Is there a debate about the New Testament canon? I mean, there really isn't. With the exception of the Apocrypha, you look around, the, we at least have the 27 books, don't we? And they add the Apocrypha, which are really not New Testament books anyway. They're Old Testament, you know. When it comes to the New Testament canon, is there a debate? Answer, no. There is none. So that should be encouraging to you, shouldn't it? I mean, the fact of the matter is we're really not practically in the dark about this. I know that the National Enquirer keeps wanting to find new Gospels of Thomas or some other things. They keep finding new accounts of the life of Jesus. But I don't think they're going to succeed in, in, in being a, you know, the 28th book of the New Testament. I don't think it's going to happen. All right, well, let's look at his answers. Number one, answer number one. Anytime you ask a why question concerning God's actions or lack of action, which God does not answer in Scripture, realize you're on shaky ground, period. Okay? We, don't, we, don't, we really can't be asking why questions. All right, God didn't do that. He didn't give us an inspired table of contents. All right, God's ways are not our ways, and so no conjectured answer is really going to be truly satisfying to you. Answer number two, the books of the Bible were not produced as they are published now in a bound volume. They were produced little by little, weren't they? As history unfolded, Paul would write a letter to Corinth, or he'd write a letter to Rome, and so it would be. And furthermore, he never knew. I don't really think he knew that he was writing Scripture. I think he knew that what he was writing was the Lord's command, but I don't think he would say, I am going to write Scripture today. 1 Corinthians will be identified as a scriptural letter equal in authority to the book of Leviticus. I don't think he knew that. I think he was just writing with apostolic authority to answer certain issues in various churches. I think he wrote a lot more letters than made it into Scripture. I I think there's actually clearly indications that he wrote more letters to, to the Corinthians than we have. So, um, the books were produced not as they're published now in a bound volume. Rather, they developed over a 1,500-year span of history. Unless God gave us a list of books prophetically ahead of time, so you could kind of check them off as you unfolded in redemptive history. Well, I guess it's coming up time for Isaiah to be born, and maybe we'll get his book sometime later this year. And so you can check that box, and uh, Jeremiah would come in you know, another 100 years, we'll get Jeremiah. Well, what would they do with the table of contents like that? Where would it sit? Would it be along the ark? 
And they look, who's Peter? You know, I don't understand. Thessalonians, what is that all about? You know, I mean, what would they do with it? It just, it wouldn't make any sense. Okay, so you say ahead of time. What about afterwards? Why couldn't they have given? uh, He said such a list could not have existed anyway until the end of the first century. And then answer number three, God has not left us truly in a quandary concerning the scope of Scripture. But there's actually been a remarkable unanimity over the 66 books of the Bible among Christian people. Now, he identifies possible criteria for New Testament canon. He gives six of them and rejects them. I'm not going to go through all of his arguments, but uh, apostolicity, that means an apostle wrote it. The problem with that is we're not always sure which books are apostolic. Is Matthew an apostolic gospel? Yeah, he was an apostle. Well, what about Mark? Well, he wasn't. Should we accept it or not? I mean, that actually is not a good standard. I think we should just shoot on down to number seven, the one that Roger Nicole identifies as the best criteria for the New Testament canon. And that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit given corporately to God's people and made manifest by a nearly unanimous acceptance of the New Testament canon in Christian churches. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Reformed, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Baptist, there we are, Methodist, Presbyterian, Quakers, Disciples, Adventists, even Unitarian Universalists, Mormon, Christian Scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, all acknowledge the same 27 books of the Bible, of the New Testament. They all do, don't they? Is that an accident? I don't think so. Here's my key question. If God intended to give us his word written, don't you think he would be powerful or sovereign enough to work through history and the processes of the church to identify which books belong in the Bible? Don't you think he's able to do that? I think he is. And it doesn't really matter if it was 50.5% to 49.5%. The book got in, didn't it? And God saw to it. It doesn't really matter what the what the ecumenical council did and how many unbelievers were there and voted against the book of James or the book of Hebrews, etc. It doesn't really matter. What matters is God wanted it in there and so it is. So that's what you have to ask. If it's true, these are not idle words for you, they are your life. If that is true and if we need the scripture, isn't he big and strong enough to get it to us? I think so. The same argument works for the manuscripts as well. Isn't God sovereign enough to give us an essentially unified testimony in the manuscripts so that we're really not wondering what the scripture is? The answer is yes. I really look at the manuscripts as a 5,000 voice choir and 99% of them are singing on key and 1% aren't. And you can hear that note, can't you? I mean, there's no doubt what that note is, even though there's some bad tenors or bass or sopranos that, you know, if they're especially shrill, they cause some trouble for the church. But for the most part, we know what each note is as we listen to the symphony, don't we? Yeah. Right. And they were in debate. The book of Revelation took a beating. And and a lot of people, even in the Reformation, did not consider uh, Revelation canonical. And uh, it's, I think it's Martin, Luther, Martin Luther's great shame that he, he called James an epistle of straw. They start to take away. because And why? Because James has a problem on justification by faith. And that was the issue that Luther was willing to die over. And so he, he his answer, instead of trying to really understand what justification meant to James, he said, well, then James is just an epistle of straw. It's singing off note and it doesn't really belong in the canon. And that was the wrong thing to do. The book of Revelation took a a beating as well um, from that. But anyway, any questions about the canon and how we identified it and uh, what answers you would give if somebody said, how do you know what books are in the Bible? Yeah? How about based on the list in the Bible that sort of 
Man, yeah, the manuscripts. Right. Yeah, there's three verses in Matthew that the NIV put into the into the um, footnote rather than in the text itself. Yeah, that's all manuscript stuff. Um, do you want to take a minute and understand manuscripts? We can do that. I mean, basically, the manuscripts work this way. You have um, basically parts of the Bible that are really, really old, okay? You might have, for example... Um, a, a piece of papyrus from Egypt, very, very low humidity in Egypt, so there's not much water in the air, and, and as a result, things that are really old can stay around a long, long, long time. And papyrus is just leaves that are smashed and dried, and then they would write on them. That was their paper. Um, and so the oldest New Testament writings we have are from Egypt. They're, they're papyri, and they're um, parts of John's Gospel, for example. Um, and you'll just have a part of it. We'll have just a fragment. Then as time went on, as the um, history goes on, you've got some better and better what we call witnesses. What they are is completely bound codices. They're called codex. They look like a book. You know, I, I was saying that the, the Bible didn't come, bound like, come down like a bound copy. But these are fully bound copies that were found in monasteries. And they date to like the 4th century. They've got all 27 books of the New Testament in them. Every single thing. Those are good witnesses because they have every single verse you're going to want to find. Uh, they're written in Greek, of course. And they're written with a certain style. Every, ca- every letter was capital um, back in those old, old days, in the f- third and fourth. Anyway, they have all of these manuscripts. And so what you're going to do is, as you're trying to put together your Bible, you're going to put together what you call an eclectic translation or an eclectic thing. You're going to take all of your copies of each book of the New Testament or each verse and put them in one place. And then you're going to start to see if they're singing on key. That's what I'm saying. For the most part, like I said, 99% of the time, there's no discrepancies. Um, Copies were made of copies which were made of other copies, and so it's like an ancestry of copies. The problem comes when there is the discordant note. You know what I'm saying? And in in Mark's Gospel, for example, there is, um, at the end of Mark's Gospel, there's a whole section there in which um, after Jesus, after an angel tells the women that Jesus has risen from the dead, then Jesus comes and uh, uh, there's some interesting things at the end of Mark's gospel, like snake handling and drinking poison and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the most ancient manuscripts don't have that, and that's what that's the problem. The, the idea of manuscript study is the older, the older the better. That's the idea. The older stuff you've got, the more close to the source, the better it is. The irony is the older the, the translation, like the Latin Vulgate or the English, whatever, the newer the manuscripts they used. You see what I'm saying? So in effect, back around the time of the Reformation, they had newer manuscripts. The more we went on in history, the further back archaeology was able to get us. You see what I'm getting at? So as we moved on over the next two or three or four hundred years, we started getting older and older and older copies and collecting them and putting in good libraries so that we would have them. And then they said, well, wait a minute, we noticed some problems. And so they would begin to look at them. But I want you to understand that you're talking about 1% of the New Testament. There's really only a couple of key places. Mark's Gospel, the woman caught in adultery, and then a couple of verses here and there. It has been rightly said there is not a single New Testament doctrine that is hanging in the balance on a manuscript issue. And that is true. The stories, those, you know, the end of Mark's Gospel, it's, it's important for us to to know that and it would be good for us to know for sure whether it's scripture or not but it doesn't, it's not going to change your understanding of Jesus at all 
it may change your understanding of snakes. And if you decide on the basis of Mark 16 to handle snakes and drink deadly poison and you die, um, you will find out in heaven whether that was scripture or not or you were applying it properly. But for the most part, you know, you're dealing with what I think is an, is a, an embarrassment of riches on manuscript evidence. Can you think of any other ancient writings? I mean, stuff that was written around the time of the New Testament that people still read today. There are some. What are some things really, really old that people still read or study today? Josephus. Socrates. Okay, certainly the Greek philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all their writings. Any of you guys ever study Latin? The uh, Iliad and the Odyssey. And then um, Julius Caesar, Caesar's writings, all of that. This is how it works, okay? If this is the number of manuscripts that they're working with here, number of manuscripts, okay? The more manuscripts you have, the more certain you are about the translation, right, or, or the original. It, wouldn't that stand a reason? If you've got like, like a target and you're trying to find out if somebody's a good shot, okay, and you've got like that, you're not really sure, especially if one of them's out here, right? It, were they a good shot? They'd just get lucky there, maybe. Maybe they're terrible, and the next five are going to be out here and don't stand anywhere near it. But if, on the other hand, you get back a target and it's looking like this, right? And then there's these two out there, but you say, well, I mean, this person's an, an expert marksman, right? So the more manuscripts you have, the more certain you are of, of what you're dealing with, right? That makes sense. Well, if you were going to look at um, ancient writings like Julius Caesar, if you're talking about manuscripts that were that were originally, you know, like within the first X number of years of when he wrote, you're talking about with Caesar, maybe seven. They had like seven of them within the first 200 years of when they know, knew he wrote. And then uh, uh, Plato or Aristotle, you're dealing with like 11 or 15. The most by far is the Odyssey by Homer. They've got like 640 manuscripts or copies. The New Testament, you're dealing with 5,000 written within the first... And the, the gap between when it was written and when they know the earliest manuscripts like 30 years. The gap on the Odyssey is like 500 years. That's the oldest one they got from when they know Homer lived. You see what I'm saying? So God has just made it an, an embarrassingly obvious situation. He's given us not that number, but... 50 times that number of dots and they're all pretty close to the bullseye. And so after a while, you just don't wonder anymore on manuscripts. It doesn't bother you. You just know that God is sovereign enough to get us the Bible and he's done the job. See what I'm getting at? So no doctrine is hanging in the balance on manuscripts. But you still have to deal with manuscripts and struggle with them. If you're a pastor and you're preaching, you want to be uh, faithful to the text. Good question. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the authority of Scripture. Very important topic. First of all, what is authority? Well, authority is the, the way that you're going to be making decisions for your life. How do you know what to do, what to think? What's going to be the authority for your life? How are you going to navigate your life? Well, there are different, different, um, there are different sources of authority that, uh, that a church or individuals could choose. For example, uh, there's tradition. Those of you who have been through the membership class recently, this will be familiar to you, but tradition. That would be the way we've always done it, okay? Does that have a certain authority to it? You better believe it. Some churches will take that and inscribe it in stone, okay? That is the way we have always done it. The Roman Catholic Church 
is very traditional. In other words, they hand stuff down from generation to generation of an equal authority to the Word of God. In some cases, greater authority than the Word of God. Tradition. All right, what's another one? What's listed there? Human reason. You know, I will believe or act what in a way that seems reasonable to me. What I think is best. There's a way that seems right to a man, right? It's reasonable, okay? So I will accept those doctrines that are reasonable to me. I will reject those doctrines that are not reasonable to me. For example, uh, you know, an atheistic scientist type person. The miracle stories of Jesus or creation out of nothing doesn't make sense to that individual. So they reject them. So therefore, what is the authority in their life? Their own brain is. What seems reasonable to them? All right? Uh, The Unitarian Universalists thought that the doctrine of the Trinity was unreasonable. All right? How in the world can you tell me that you've got three persons but only one God? And they kind of talk to each other and, and they have this relationship but there's only one God? That's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. And so therefore they denied the doctrine of the Trinity. They believed in, instead in Unitarianism that there is only one God and Jesus therefore is not God, you see. And so that led them into all kinds of other doctrinal problems, all right? They were elevating reason above Scripture, you see? That was their authority. Another form of authority would be human personality or position. For example, if the Pope says such and such, then that's the way it is. If he speaks ex cathedra, that means from his throne, uh, from his chair, what he says has equal authority to Scripture. Thankfully for them, he hasn't spoken ex cathedra since the 19th century. They usually don't do it that often. All right, Popes try to avoid it because it's a little bit embarrassing if you make a claim or a statement and then it turns out to be false. Well, he uh, made his statement that uh, Mary was uh, immaculate born, the immaculate conception of Mary. I think that was the last last ex-cathedra statement. Well, you can't disprove it. How can you prove it? The scripture doesn't say anything about it, although it does give indicators that Mary was a sinner. When she says, I, you know, I praise God my Savior, well, what does she need saving from if she's not a sinner? But anyway, he made the statement that Mary was immaculately born. She had no... You ever see Catholic Church, Church of the Immaculate Conception? That is not about Jesus. That's about Mary, that she was immaculately conceived. No sin in her conception. Why? Because they thought if Mary was a sinner and Jesus grew up inside her, then Jesus would somehow catch her sin, I guess. So she had to be immaculate or sinless. Sinless, okay? Say again? Well, I know. I mean, I, I think it's just a domino effect. I mean, it just goes on and on. So if they can't pull it off with the incarnation, why do they think they can do it with the Immaculate Conception? However it worked for Mary, I would think it would work for Jesus. But at any rate, that's how that worked. Or position. You could have somebody who's authoritative and, and their personality, they just carry the day by their, the, the dominance of their personality. This would be very much like a cult, like Jim Jones or David Koresh. And, and just because they say so, the whole group is going to do it. These are all false forms of authority, aren't they? Instead, we are going to have revelation as our authority and our access to revelation is Scripture. Scripture is our authority. Grudem puts it this way, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Yes, quick. I read that and I was wondering when Paul told us to get disqualified, 
I think you ought to go look for it. All right? You go ahead and, and look for it. The problem is you're going to have a hard time bringing it to him because he, he said, bring my cloak and the, and the scrolls that I left with Carpus at Troas. So if you can find Carpus and you can find Troas, I don't even know where Troas is. Maybe you can find it. You'll be looking a long time. I, I think the more you go on to it, you begin to realize that exegesis tells you when God's commanding you to do something and when he's not commanding you to do something. And that's a, that's a tough thing to do because sometimes God will command or Christ will speak words to the apostles, like especially in John 14 through 17. He'll say things to them that I think are unique to them, and yet we very quickly transfer them to ourselves. Like when he says, I will call to mind all the things I have said to you, I think he's really speaking to the apostles, and then they were going to write them down for us, you see. It doesn't mean that you don't need to memorize Scripture because the Holy Spirit's going to call to mind all of Jesus' words. I think it was that the, the apostles had a unique role as eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so therefore, when he's saying that to them, it's unique to them. Anyway, all the words of Scripture are God's words. Second Timothy 3.16 shows that this is what the Bible claims for itself. All Scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I know we've been over this before, so I'm not going to stop with this. Second Peter 1.20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no, script, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God. I mean, that's, that is the doctrine of Scripture there. That is, you, you get those words, and it covers basically every problem you could have in understanding the doctrine of Scripture. Men spoke from God. That is what we believe. If you get those four words down, that's the doctrine of inspiration. That's what we believe. First of all, men, and we're not really zeroing in on the gender at that point, but saying human beings, human beings spoke. It was the, the Bible is a human document, or 66 human documents. They spoke, they wrote, but they wrote from God, didn't they? God worked in such a way that they were preserved or protected from error. Okay? Well, this includes the New Testament as well. As we already said, John 14:26, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. I think the you there is at least primarily, I think, the apostles. The apostles had a unique role to remember the words of Jesus. Why do you think he called them, the twelve, to be with him all the time? So that they would experience it, that they would hear it, that they would remember it, and later the Spirit would bring it to mind. You see? So, um, their writings were going to be um, Scripture. Uh, we already covered 1 Corinthians 14 and 2 Peter, that, that Paul's uh, word was... Uh, the Lord's command and that Peter acknowledged that his writings were scripture. Secondly, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. This is true of all Christians, but it's true only of Christians. Do you hear what I'm saying? We are convinced that the Bible is the word of God primarily by reading it. Isn't that true? It's not going to be a bunch of evidence I'm going to give you in this systematic theology lecture that's going to convince you that the Bible's the Word of God. And as a matter of fact, if you're not a believer in Christ, you won't be convinced. You will look on the Bible as a human document. To me, the great change that happens in you, one of many, when you're a Christian, is you begin to look at the Bible as the Word of God written, and you begin to read it as though God were speaking directly to you and giving you wisdom for your life. Isn't that true? But before that, you looked on it as a human document, something that wasn't worth really studying the way you do now. So it's true of all Christians. 1 Corinthians 2.13. This is what we speak, 
not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The we in that is the apostles. The apostles spoke not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. As they wrote, uh, they wrote Scripture, and so we accept that and believe it. John 10:27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you feel like Jesus is speaking to you when you read the Bible? When you read his teachings? When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't you feel like he's speaking right to you? I think as a Christian, you just do. You just say that. He's talking to me. And he is. My sheep hear my voice. Well, how are you going to hear him? Except through this doctrine of Scripture, the idea. But it's true only of Christians. If you continue in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. In context, that means he can't accept apostolic writings. He can't accept that the things we speak are Scripture. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, other evidence of the Scripture, the authority of Scripture, is useful but not finally convincing, is it? Well, what kind of stuff? Well, I've given you some wonderful things in here. The Bible's unique. The Bible's unique, for example, in its continuity, page 7. Written over a 1,500-year span. Written over 40 generations. Written by over 40 authors from every walk of life. Kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. Written in different places. Moses in the desert. Jeremiah in a dungeon. Daniel in a palace. Paul in a prison. John in exile on an island. Written in times of war, of peace, of great joy, of terrible sadness. Written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Written about hundreds of controversial subjects, life, death, judgment, right and wrong, etc. And yet for all of this, the Bible speaks with a united voice about all of these issues. That cannot be explained, I think, humanly. It's unique in its circulation and translation. There are several billion copies of the Bible floating out there somewhere. Several billion. Do you think any other book comes close? And no other book comes even remotely close to that. Over 2,500 different languages. And I can assure you, no book comes close on that one. You might say, what about the Quran? Quran can't be translated. It cannot be translated. They don't permit it. If you go down to the bookstore, you're not going to get the Quran. You're going to get the meaning of the glorious Quran in English, right? But you can't get the Quran. They don't translate it. You've got to learn Arabic. And so everywhere that Islam goes, it takes with it Arabic culture and Arabic language. And you've got to conform to them. You've got to learn their language. All right? If you really want to study the Quran, you have to learn Arabic. The Bible is not that way. Translation was built into God's redemptive plan. And we're taking it seriously, aren't we? Wycliffe Bible translators and others are taking very seriously the, the need to translate the Bible. 2,500 different languages. No other book in human history even comes close. It's unique in its survival. It survived over 3,500 years of history. It survived through persecution. Many kings and leaders have tried to destroy the Bible, to burn it, forbid it, uh, forbid it from being read, forbid it from being published. I've told the story before about Voltaire, remember, who said that within one generation, no one in France would be reading the Bible. And uh, within 40 years, the French Bible Society had bought his house and were using it to publish Bibles. It's just one of the great, it's one of the great joyful ironies and anybody who tries to make statements about the obsoleteness of the Bible is soon ridiculed themselves. Uh, God is in the business of that. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs them to scorn. He says, look, you know, all men are like grass. But my word will still be around. Trust me. I know how to keep it around. 
All right, it's here. And someone have said the Bible is an anvil that's destroyed many hammers. So people hammer on it and it still survives. As a matter of fact, the more you hit it, the better it sounds. Uh, it's just a powerful, powerful thing. It's survived. It's unique in its teachings. Prophecy, the Bible alone stands outside of time and makes predictions which come true hundreds or even thousands of years later. No other book can do that. It's unique in its history. The Bible records historical events thousands of years ago with incredible accuracy. Modern archaeology has verified many of these details, not all of them, but many. Personalities, the Bible is honest about its heroes. It never tries to cover up their failings or sins. King David and Bathsheba, the disciples constantly misunderstanding Jesus. By the way, I'm about to preach through the 12, 12 apostles in Matthew 10. I was working on those sermons the last few weeks. And I've identified at least 12 sins, one for each of the apostles. So... Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they were definitely failing people, weren't they? And, and yet God used them in a mighty way. The Bible has a habit of telling the truth. Now, that is an absolute understatement. The Bible is truth. All right? But the Bible has a habit of telling the truth. It's just a way of saying it always just speaks honestly about its people. All right? So, therefore, when it says that Jesus was sinless, he was sinless. Because it makes that claim about no one else in Scripture. The Bible is unique in its reliability. It's confirmed by manuscript evidence, as we talked about earlier tonight, 5,000 manuscripts. It's unique in that way. It's confirmed also by archaeology. Book of Mormon, parenthetically, makes all kinds of archaeological claims for North America. Not one has been proved. And they keep pumping money into North American archaeology. They have made tremendous contributions to Mesoamerican studies. We've learned tremendous amounts about the Incas and the Aztecs and all that. But nothing has validated the Book of Mormon. I mean, I would think they'd give up, but I, I think we should all be grateful for the things we've learned about the Aztecs from the Mormons, you know. But they keep trying to prove that the Book of Mormon is true, and they can't. All right. It's unique in its supernatural prophecies, as I already mentioned. Uh, noteworthy prophecies confirmed by history, Daniel 8 and Alexander the Great, that connection. Yet, for all of this, the internal testimony of the Spirit to the Christian is the highest proof that the Scripture is the Word of God, isn't it? All of this stuff, is this going to convince you if you're not a believer? If I give you all this bulleted list of things, are you going to say, oh, I can see it now? No, you've got to have the inter internal Holy Spirit. Yes, Tanya, one more. That's right. That's very, very true. Uh, it speaks about controversial topics with a united voice, and I consider that to be supernatural. I've, sp I've spent a lot of time memorizing Scripture, and what it shows me is that basically after about four or five years of really working at Christian doctrine, studying systematic theology, you know, working at it, you pretty much have your theology. I mean, it, things don't get adjusted or, or shift much after that. But what happens after that when you study Scripture is see how deep it is, how deeply connected these things are. You go down. Rather than broad and changing everything, you start to say, wow, I didn't realize how deep the whole sacrificial system was in the fulfillment of Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's deep, and it's deeper than you can even imagine. I mean, it's, it's amazing how these themes just go down and down and down into the Scriptures. It's a beautiful thing. Now, the words of Scripture are self-attesting. What does that mean? That we attest to the words of Scripture to show that Scripture is authoritative, right? We're going to say... All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking. You say, well, wait a minute, wait. You're quoting Scripture to prove Scripture, right? You're quoting the Word of God. You're saying, Psalm 12, 6, that the words of God are pure and flawless. Wait a minute, you did it again. You quoted a Bible text to show that the Bible is... You can't do that. That's circular reasoning, right? Well, yes, it is. <laughs> There's no other way to get around it. But realize this. 
any claim to absolute authority must be, by definition, circular. If you make the claim that your reason is the highest authority in your life, you will say, why? What reason can you give for that? Well, it seems reasonable to me to do that. It's self-attesting, and it must be, because anything you use to prove it itself will become the highest authority, right? If we try to go outside of the Bible to some other court of appeals and say, let's take the Bible to that court of appeals and prove that it's the Word of God, whatever that court of appeals is will be higher authority than the Bible, right? Can't be. The Scripture is its own court of appeal. You can't go any higher. Yes, Brevard? Yeah. Well, I've I've come recently to think of authority as connected to the author. So because God is the author of the Bible through the doctrine of inspiration, that's where we get its authority. Okay. All right. I'm going to finish this circular argument thing and then we'll stop here on page eight. Um, objection. This is a circular argument. It is true. It is circular. Uh, but anybody arguing for something like that will have a circular argument. Also, as I've mentioned before, language itself is circular but it works just fine. Now, I proved this today. I got out my American Heritage Dictionary. I've often wondered about this. And I looked up the definition of the word left as opposed to right. You know, left, right. Left-handed, right-handed. Left. Designating, belonging to, or located on the side of the body to the north when the subject is facing east. All right. Well, what does north mean? I looked that up. Okay, here's north. The direction to the left of an observing facing the sunrise. We didn't get anywhere. It's totally circular. So are you going to go home and throw your Bibles out? I mean, your, your dictionaries out? No, it works. Even though it's completely circular, it works, doesn't it, somehow? Language is circular. Oh, I looked up east, too. It's the direction of the Earth's axial rotation. And uh, I, I put the direction of the sunrise, you mean, I guess. At any rate. Actually, the true way this persuasion that the Bible is the Word of God is is not circular, but more like a spiral. Increasing knowledge of God personally and increasing knowledge of the Bible, the texts themselves go hand in hand, don't they? And so basically you're kind of spiraling up in a sense of certainty, both of the person of God and the truth of the Scripture. They kind of go together, don't they? All right, any final questions um, about this topic tonight? All right, well, we'll pick up at page 8 next time and I'll add some other pages um, as we go and uh, hopefully this will be useful to you. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to look at systematic theology and to look at, uh, just like the hymn writer said, how sure a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for his saints in his excellent word. I thank you for that. The, the word of God is an absolutely sure foundation and uh, it will not move. Just as Jesus said, if you build your house on his words, the foundation will never be moved. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Father, that these, your people, will build their house on your words, Lord Jesus, uh, most certainly on, on the scripture that they have been handed and that they have accepted as your word. As we continue to study, O oh Lord, as we go into other topics like God and Christ and sin and redemption, that we will know that we move ahead with certainty, that we don't, we're not shooting in the dark, but rather we know uh, that the things that the Bible says about each of these topics is most definitely your truth. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.